G'day everyone, I'm your mate Nate. Strap yourself in for your weekly dose of money, politics and truth. Together, we look at high-impact stories that you may have heard of, but have never truly been told. From historic Kerry Packer tales to longer deep dives into the true origins of the welcome to country phenomenon. I'm your mate Nate, and get ready to rethink the way you look at the world around you. In today's long yarn, we look at one of the biggest fraudsters in history. Alan Stanford swindled 8 billion bucks from unsuspecting investors through a little-known island in the middle of the Caribbean, and he almost got away with it. Everyone's heard of the Wolf of Wall Street, but what if I told you there's a story that makes Jordan Belfort look like a puppy dog? This man controlled $50 billion in fraudulent assets and got away with it for over 25 years. It's 1986. The Soviets are trying to cover up a nuclear disaster in Chernobyl. The Oprah Winfrey Show debuts nationally, and the US is riding a high on a bull market. However, far from the financial hubs on a tiny Caribbean island most couldn't find on a map, a Texan real estate tycoon is about to make a move that would later shock the financial world. I'm your mate Nate, and this is the crazy tale of Alan Stanford and Stanford Bank. The story starts in the small town of Mahia, Texas. With a population of 6,000, Alan would spend the majority of his childhood here. Even though his father was the mayor of the area, it wasn't an easy upbringing. The town was over 60% Latino and African-American families, whose fathers often worked out on the scorching Texan oil fields for weeks at a time. But when the oil boom of the mid-1900s started to dry up, Alcohol use and violence began to become commonplace and petty crime increased substantially. Big Al got through the tougher times and after graduating Baylor University with a bachelor's in finance, Al would connect with his old man and establish a real estate business in Waco, Texas. The father-son duo had intentions of building a strong foundation for future success. As the new generation of Texans grew up and their parents passed away, many moved on in search of work elsewhere. As a result, the real estate market completely collapsed in Houston. Big Al and his old man smelt money in the struggle. They went on a buying frenzy, snapping up the depressed and derelict property all around Houston. Years later, when the market stabilized, they profited massively from the increase in value. Their real estate company quickly became humongous with over 500 employees on the payroll. The company was humming and his old man was getting older, so he decided to retire and hand over the reins to Big Al. In a strange move, Alan would move to the tiny Caribbean island of Montserrat. The island itself is a British colony, but with a population of only 4,000 people and a total area of 102 square kilometers, it was a bizarre change. To make things stranger, he fell in love with cricket, an especially odd interest for a Texan. The real reason for the move though? To establish a bank, a bank that would make him filthy rich. In 1986, Big Al used his cash from the real estate business and started the Guardian International Bank in Montserrat. But the British government began conducting investigations into individuals on the island and kept a watchful eye on Big Al. 
Not liking the regulatory scrutiny, Stanford would uproot his infant bank and move to the larger island of Antigua. Also in the Caribbean, Antigua is more well known and with a larger population of 95,000, the new location looked to provide a better springboard for Al and his bank. With the business set up, Big Al needed a source of income. He needed big clients. Growing up, Big Al realized that many wealthy Latin Americans were worried about the financial stability of their own countries and the corruption that was present in their governments. He believed that he could then sell stability to these wealthy clients and promise international diversification through his bank. Al would then go on to assemble a motley crew to oversee the bank's operations. The investment committee consisted of Alan himself, his former college roommate who he appointed CFO, his own father who he had coaxed out of retirement, and a family friend who was originally a used car salesman. To give the bank better legitimacy, he established an office in Texas and dealt in the US dollar. Big Al's marketing salesman, or the car yard flogger, then started pitching to clients and the Motley crew would run seamlessly for almost 20 years. Three years after founding the bank, Big Al and co had been entrusted with a whopping 350 million bucks. The way the bank was able to gain such growth was primarily focusing on one thing, Certificate of Deposits, or CDs. Suggested by his college roommate, a CD is a type of savings account offered by most banks and credit unions. It's essentially a savings account where in exchange for a high interest rate, an individual generally agrees to keep the money in the account without withdrawing it for a specific length of time. Withdrawing the money early would mean paying a penalty fee to the bank. So in order to amass more clients, Alan promised returns higher than almost every other bank in the world. In the beginning, this wasn't particularly any cause for concern, as smaller banks often advertise higher rates. But the way Cheeky Allen was achieving these higher rates would be the thing that would come back to bite him. By the 1990s, Stanford Bank's assets under management ballooned to an eye-watering $3 billion. Allen was one of the largest employers in Antigua, and he was living the high life. He would purchase a private jet, a helicopter, a yacht, and he would also go on to create his own airline called Caribbean Star. In fairness to Big Al, he also ensured that some of his wealth trickled down. He funded several large philanthropic projects, including the construction of a large local cricket pitch. He also started the Stanford 2020 Cricket Tournament, which was created in 2008 and would go on to become a global sensation, generating a worldwide TV audience of over 300 million people. He also gave a $20 million prize to the winner of his England vs West Indies All-Stars Tournament. At the time, this was the largest prize ever offered to a team in a single series. Big Al's contributions to the commercialization of cricket are said to have changed the game forever. It was all sunshine and rainbows for Big Al at this point. He got his Antiguan citizenship. He was then knighted by the British Commonwealth as Sir Alan Stanford as thanks to his contributions to the economy. But there was a storm brewing. 
Towards the mid-2000s, Stanford Bank's reputation meant that they could expand their clientele. And by 2008, Stanford was looking after money from over 140 countries and their assets under management totaled over $50 billion. For 17 years straight, Stanford had been delivering above average market returns on its CDs and the SEC were beginning to sniff foul play. Since 1997, the SEC had been keeping a watchful eye on Stanford Bank and Big Al. But because of its location offshore, the feds weren't sure about the scale or the size of the operation. Then in mid-2008, all hell broke loose. The GFC engulfed companies and uncovered numerous predatory practices within the financial world. With mounting public pressure and an increase to government funding, the FBI was spurred to investigate Stanford Bank further, and what they found was catastrophic. It didn't exist. It was a Hollywood set. They weren't investing the money, like Stanford told investors. The full method on how the scheme operated was never released to the public in fear that others may replicate it. However, several expert opinions have suggested that Al would essentially pay out CD withdrawals with money that was locked into an account. When it was time for that account to have money withdrawn, he would use another account's funds and so on. Theoretically, this created an infinite Ponzi scheme loophole, where the money which was supposed to be generating high interest was actually just being pocketed by Big Al and his crew. Off the back of this, the SEC would go on to file several criminal charges against Big Al. Knowing the feds were chasing his tail and his time was coming to a close, he frantically attempted to flee the country using his private jet, but he would fall on his own sword. Big Al's pilots refused to be paid via credit card, only accepting a wire transfer. He tried to scramble to get payment set up for them, but time would run out and he never got off the tarmac. Al was then arrested in his girlfriend's Virginian home on June 18, 2009. In the subsequent trial, the SEC alleged that Stanford had defrauded investors of over $7 billion using Stanford Bank. The feds were sure that Alan would plead guilty for a more lenient sentence. But, as it turned out, Al had powerful friends at the SEC, and subsequently, he would protest his innocence. In 2010, Amazingly, the case against Big Al collapsed, with the head investigator dropping the case entirely. This controversial and strange twist of events led to the SEC to conduct an independent review into the matter, and heading the case was Alan's grim reaper. With Inspector General David C. Williams at the helm, he was absolutely appalled that an almost decades-long investigation could fail so badly. It was so shocking to him that he was going to do anything to make sure charges stuck against Big Al. In a dimly lit room in Washington, the FBI were hours in on a grueling interrogation. Their victim, Big Al's roommate and CFO, and guess what? He cracked under pressure. After rounds of questioning, threats and aggression, James Davis informed the FBI and the SEC about the practices that were going on inside the bank. In exchange for leniency, the former friend took the witness stand and condemned his boss to the feds. He would later testify that since 1988, his role at the company was to fabricate the financial modelling and make up the returns the bank could offer. To add insult to injury before the conclusion of his trial, 
Big Al was beaten brutally by his cellmate whilst in custody, leaving him with 32 broken bones and permanent blindness in one of his eyes. After three days of deliberation, Alan Stanford was convicted on 13 out of 14 counts by a US federal jury. He was ordered to forfeit 330 million bucks and was sentenced to 20 years for conspiracy to commit wire fraud and mail fraud, 80 years for four counts of wire fraud, five years for conspiring to obstruct the SEC. Basically, he's in the slammer for life. Whereas his roommate Jimmy Davis was sentenced to just five years in prison for his role in the scheme, showing the world that it pays to rat. Alan Stanford's story will go down in history as one of the largest frauds in the world, being only second to Mad Bernie Madoff's scheme. A far cry from the sunny islands of the Caribbean, Big Al will now spend the rest of his life in a cell. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're a new listener, we've got episodes coming out every Tuesday and Thursday morning. Can't wait to catch you in the next one, guys.